Some of you know me, some of you don't. If so, we're just glad that you're here and I get the opportunity to speak for us today uh, from the scriptures. And this is our teaching time in the word. One of the preeminent pottery artists of the last 50 years is this guy named Warren McKenzie. And I don't know if you've ever heard, is anybody a pottery freak and has heard of Warren McKenzie? That's all of us. We have no idea. It's okay. I was reading a book a few months ago where his name came up. But it was interesting because I love the quote he said. Because you don't just become the preeminent pottery person in the United States overnight. And they said, Warren, what is the key to your success? And he said, uh, and do we have the, did you put it up? I've got it. I'm good to go. No, I've got it. I'm in control, man. That's my whole life. This is all about the quote. The first 10,000 slides. The first 10,000 pots are difficult, and then it gets a little easier. I love that quote, right? And like the first 10,000, they're pretty, pretty rough, but then it gets easier. So what, uh, coming into in the slide that we gave a sneak peek to is that really what this is called in, you know, in, in broader research is deliberate practice theory. And I don't know if you've heard of this. It's probably been popularized most by Malcolm Gladwell. If you're familiar with this guy with crazy hair, he's seen as a futurist and a thought leader. And Gladwell writes a whole book about it, which is interesting because he took the research from Anders Ericsson. And what's really interesting about all of us is Ericsson disagrees with some of the ways that Gladwell has taken some of his thoughts. But the thing that both of them agreed is that we have this image that we think of somebody becoming prolific and they're talented and they are innately genius. But the reality is, is that most of that, if not all of that, actually happens when people dedicate them to a ta- themselves to a task over and over and over again. And the reason that many of us are not good at certain things is because we give up far too early. And that brings to light the question with which we will wrestle this morning. And that is, when have you felt like giving up? When have you given in too early? When has the mountain before you seemed too steep to even consider climbing? Do you remember those moments in retrospect where you wish you had pressed even harder? Friends, we're in the series that we've started this year out as a series on the word. And the one thing is that we as a church are very big on the scriptures in the Bible. We want to focus on that. Uh, The second thing that we've done is we've asked people this year within our church to come up with their own word, a word to define themselves. And here in a couple weeks as we wrap this up, we're going to have us just try to share that in community. And we're going through our small groups with selecting a word But the third thing that we do here within our Sunday morning gathering is we're trying to find these words that are encapsulating who Echo is as a congregation, as a church of believers, and who we need to be. And uh, David has done so over the weeks by having these great uh, neon shirts. And what's interesting is that we had this, you know, conversation throughout the week where I was like, dude, I don't have enough letters for the shirt this week. And he's like, oh, you know, you'll be okay, so... I forgot until like late last night, like I, I still didn't have the letters. So I, I, I was trying to um, figure out how to get our word of the day, which is persistence. And if you remember, I made a striper shirt the last time and I was able to try to take the, the letters of the shirt and all I could get out of it was persist, which actually was like this whole illustration on persistence because I was going to get it done. See that? That's what I was going to do. But then look at David, man. This is, that's that guy. 
Look at this, because he knew I wanted to really wear a, a deer hunting shirt today in church. So we are going to talk about this morning, this word persistence. Persisting in getting this on, maybe. It was persistent. There's a microphone in here somewhere. There it is. This is exciting. This is compelling stuff. All right, I've got it. And where we're going to be this morning is in the book of Luke. And that's in the New Testament. If you have blue Bibles in, the, in with you, we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18 at the beginning of that. It's in the New Testament. These, uh, the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, tells the story of Jesus and his life and his teaching. I don't have a page number in the blue Bible. Somebody shout that out one more time. 742 in the blue Bible as we talk about persistence. I do really need to talk about this text at the beginning because it's very short. And what it is, is it's a parable. It's a story about that Jesus told. And Jesus would tell things in parables to try to give an illustration for people to think about things that are happening in the bigger role of the world and the universe. So we would tell these little stories that would have packed meeting. And that was a parable. I'm going to tell you, we just taught through the book of Luke um, last year. Like, we had just talked about this last year, and I just skipped over this one altogether because, to be honest, I was like, this one's kind of boring. So, I don't, do you like how I'm leading with that one this morning? I'm like, I'm getting ready to talk to you about something that I view as boring. And then you're like, how can, you know, a, a church leader say that something in the Bible is boring? Like, lightning's going to strike him down. I'm just telling you. Not all of it is compelling, and sometimes we have to mine a little deeper for this stuff. But actually, I'm going to tell you, by the end of it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Did I sell you on it? I didn't. Let me give you some background. This is one of the things that's very key for us to understand is that through culture, through generations, people have worldviews that define them. And in Jesus's day, living in what is modern day Israel, then what's probably called the land of Palestine, there was a prevailing interest of the people at that time. They were simple folk. They were quasi-agrarian. There were some cities where industry and commerce would happen. But the thing on the mind of almost all the people of God was how it would end. How would it all end? And some of you are like, oh, wow, that's apropos because that's what we're grappling with here right, to, right now. It's interesting, though, when they were talking about how would it end, it wasn't just the end of the world. Because when people go back, you know, religious leaders over the years have gone back in these texts and they've tried to interpret, oh, this is how the world is exactly going to end. But the interesting thing is, during Jesus' time, they weren't obsessed with the end of the world. They were obsessed when occupation would end. You see, because during that time, the land where Israel was, well, it's during all times, uh, is the land of Israel was situated right in the middle of three continents, right? And between, uh, it, it connected Africa and Asia and Europe. And because it was at the crossroads, everybody wanted that land because if you controlled Israel, you controlled trade. Alexander the Great came through and understood that. And, you know, 300 years before Jesus was born, the Greeks took that over. And in this time, however, the Jewish land was occupied by the Romans and the Roman occupation of Israel would end up not being so well in 70 AD they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and killed most of its inhabitants but this is what the people in Jesus's time were obsessed with how's it going to end when are the Romans not going to rule over us anymore when is God going to reign supreme once again 
And in light of that, Jesus tells this story. So we're in Luke chapter 18. Garrett's going to read for us the verses this morning. And we do have batteries in the microphone that work. Maybe. Maybe. It's a little yeah, fuzzy. There it is. We really got to get a new microphone. We have the finances to do it. We just need to make it happen. Garrett, do me a favor. Read verses. It's, it's on. Just, yeah, point it directly into the speaker. That helps. Yeah, it's going to be fuzzy. I got it. Just We're read good. verses 2 and 3. We're going to make it through. Luke chapter 18, verses 2 and 3 as we get started this morning. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Oh, oh, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> and there was a widow that in town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. So Jesus talks this story about two figures, the first of which is a judge. And we have a framework for what a judge is, but a judge 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ was much different than our judges today. Understand that back then there was no separation of church and state, and actually there was a marriage of it because these judges in the land of Israel were prescribed in the Old Testament. That the law of the Lord said you're supposed to have judges and on individual matters they are going to be the people that decide between two parties. So God said here's the structure of power and leadership. The judges are going to be the ones who act justly. Here was the issue is in the first century and we have extra biblical records of this. And Jesus' affirmation of it right here is that the judge system in Israel had become corrupt. Is that really the judges would rule in favor of whatever was most beneficial for them. And sometimes that involved money and kickbacks just so that they could make a ruling that would help them in the long term. So we have a justice system that is unjust. And it was a, it's a dangerous thing when somebody is in control, rules with no accountability. And that's what existed in this time. They were the final word. And unfortunately, the final word was subjective to whatever the judge felt that day. The protagonist of this parable, however, the other side, is the other side of the spectrum, of the, of, of the societal spectrum. This was a widow. And in these days, widows were seen as the most powerless people in society. They had, and the whole structure different than it was today. The reason that there's such an emphasis on marriage in the Bible, because some of you are like, is that, does God demand that we you know, get married? Can I not be single in this thing? The reason that it existed as such was it was the system of care for individuals, specifically women and children. Is The familial unit was structured because there was no social security. There were no greater systems to care for people. You cared for your family and your tribal family was the most important thing. If you were a widow, the male in the family was then removed and the voicing of women in the society were so low that they had absolutely no way to present to represent themselves so a widow the most powerless in society at the time standing in front of a judge who is not just is at the biggest disadvantage possible in this situation and the judge could merely say no depending on what was politically viable for the leader so let's pause for a minute right here as we see the two parties because, you know, I don't know how many of us identify with a judge. You're like, yeah, I wield power like a, wield power like a lightsaber, yo. Like I do whatever I want. Jedi's for life. Some of us maybe identify there, but I'm going to say that the majority of us identify on the other thing. That we can identify with the widow because there have been moments in our lives where we have personally faced injustice. Will you stop right now and think about what's the most unjust thing? That has happened to you in your life. Maybe it was years ago. 
and it still bites when you think about maybe you are in the midst of it. I ask questions because it forces me to actually grapple with it. And I thought to myself, the biggest injustice I actually had to deal with in my life was in the last 18 months. Because my employer for 10 years, I was at the point where I was let go and then kind of rehired and then put to the side. And all of the work I had done for 10 years to arrive at a place had been flushed down the toilet. And I had to come to grips with, okay, what what does my life look like then in the midst of this? And what was really interesting is I was like, wait a second. I I know this is unjust. And I was able to actually develop a a very diverse list. Like, no joke, I have like a whole report I basically wrote up about the injustices that occurred. And then I followed it through the proper HR channels. And then by the end of it, it was summarily dismissed. And I know it wasn't dismissed on its merits. It was dismissed just because the new power leaders in the, in, in the situation had just deemed it's just no, like it's just not happening. And I'll admit to losing a lot of sleep in that time. Do you remember your injustice? Probably didn't eat well. You probably didn't sleep well. Probably didn't manage it well at all. You know, what's interesting, though, is because in those situations where we focus on our own injustices, I think the difficult thing for many of us to do is to take that outside of our personal realm. I think it's difficult for us sometimes to view the world in which we live and say, okay, where are the injustices outside of where I'm at? And the only reason that I'm not as passionate about that is because it's not happening just to me. New Testament scholar Richard Vinson sums it up, which is just the frustration that many of us have in such situations. We love David and Goliath's stories, but in real life, Goliath almost always wins. I think that's why we wrestle and struggle. But here, friends, is a truth that has expanded or continues even this day. And we would offer as believers that this truth is grounded in God and his world and his creation, but it's a truth that is even bigger. The, the Roman statesman Seneca, who was born right about the same time as Jesus and lived at the same time uh, elsewhere in the Roman Empire, Seneca said, injustice never rules forever. And that's just for some of you. Okay. The quote is legit. The picture is Hunger Games, but anyways, we move on, right? Injustice never rules forever, and that's what Jesus is going to show right here. So if you'll keep with us, Garrett, let's read verses 4 and 5 of Luke 18. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see what I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This is great stuff. So the widow is so persistent that she pushes the judge to the edge. I was thinking about the best way to illustrate this, and I'm a sucker for just sometimes some of these, you know, dated references, but I don't know if you're familiar with the 1967 movie Cool Hand Luke. Anybody see that? Anybody like that? It's really, it's another thing. It's kind of like this parable. As you're reading it, you're like, what a stupid movie. You know, you have Paul Newman, and at the time, yes, eye candy, shirtless most of the movie, gleaming sweat, so there's that. 
But beyond the overall narrative, it's this guy whose life is just like this cesspool draining down into the sewer. And it's like every time he has an opportunity, if it's just like, hey, Luke, just play by the rules, get it done. He's just like, nope, I'm just going to keep at it. So at some point in the movie early on is that he, you know, basically there's a bully in the prison yard where he's being kept. And, and the, the bully just is on Luke. And his point is, is that Luke just keeps coming back to the point that they're like, okay, well, we'll fight this out. They put on the boxing gloves. They get in the ring. And Luke is just completely overmatched in this fight. But as he keeps getting hit and he goes to the ground, he gets up. To the point that the bully actually has empathy for him. And he says to Luke, just stay down. Stay down. And Luke says, you're going to have to kill me first. It's interesting because there's that persistence that comes through. And that was the, that's the, over the movie, he just does the most ridiculous things. But boy, he just sells out to it. How does a widow who has absolutely no power get her way in front of a corrupt judge? In the midst of a system that is working against her, how is she able to keep, to get him to change his mind? It's through just persistence, not quitting, not giving up. I love this right here because you see in verse 5 that this widow keeps bothering me. The literal Greek right there is this widow keeps punching me in the face. Like that's the literal Greek. Like this widow keeps punching me in the face. And it's funny because scholars is like, what's Luke trying to say? Or, you know, like, what's Luke doing? It's a figure of speech, right? Like, the judge is just basically like, this, this lady, and we're assuming the dynamics of power right there is that, you know, I don't know, the way that we want to view this story. It's just this little old lady and this powerful judge, and he's just like, I got to stop it because she keeps punching me in the face. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Why this picture? I think the picture is unique because it just shows what happens is that we have to be sold out to something even if we don't understand how it's going to work out. And the picture of persistence that Jesus pictures us is this small little old lady going to town on a judge and he could do the proverbial holding his hand out while she's swinging it, arms flailing at him. But it comes to the point that the judge changes his entire outlook just because she is persistent. And friends, that's something we need to understand, which is in the DNA of the universe that God has put within there is that what he does continually is flip the script and just you know again i hate to dive into anything that's happening in the world but that's what the scriptures speak to this at a broader level we even understand there's so much frustration right there and anger about people in the political process because we see power being removed but the one thing that we have to trust anyway is just what god has been doing throughout human history is that anytime somebody raises up in power they will see their end if they do not wield the power well because god flips the script And at some point, the powerful, they themselves become powerless. And those that are powerless truly have the power. Jesus said it over and over again. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 29 says that God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So friends, when we're dismayed at how things are going, whether it be at a broad nationalistic level, maybe it's somewhere close that you have a friend or a family member that is suffering through some sort of injustice, or maybe it's your life, you need to understand that it will come to an end because God gives power to the powerless. 
And I don't do this much, but I think that deserves a flippin' amen. Amen? All right, Garrett, verses 6 through 8 of Luke 18. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this story, like I said, is quasi-boring. But what you have to understand is at the end of it, what Jesus does is flips the script on this entire story. Everything is changed right here. Because what we see is Jesus taking this one story between a powerful judge and a powerless widow and showing how she was able to succeed. And he asks a question, a piercing question to you and I. And it's funny because as we go through this, it's, we have to understand, why am I shocked when somebody that I believe is incapable of doing good actually does good? Do you have this experience? My life is better balanced when I view people within the realm of good and evil, Right? Like, that, that, that's a good person. That, that's a bad person. And then what inevitably happens is that a bad person will do something good. And I'm like, how is that possible? I never really question when I do something good that it's just extraordinary, right? This past week, I did a good deed. I thought, I was like, I should describe this good deed. But then I'm like, no, because that's self-indulgent. And I've already, I'm admitting everything here this morning. So it's not all about me. But you need to know, this week, I did a very good deed and nobody saw it. And in the midst of the good deed, I thought to myself, you know, if people saw me doing this good deed, they would be like, that's Steve. He's good. He does good things. And they would affirm it and you would break into applause and you'd be like, wow, that's a good spiritual leader because he does good things. Which is sometimes in my life that people are shocked that I do just really, really bad things. And some of you who have known me for the longest time are like, no, we know that you're capable of doing very bad things. But what's interesting is we're absolutely shocked when somebody like a judge does something that, that a judge that is corrupt does something that is good. You know why it is? It breaks up our worldview and our paradigm. And in some way, I think that what's Jesus is an underlying thing of what he's trying to do here kind of ask like this question and it might be framed a little lewdly but there's just no better way for me to say this have you ever had to make an ask from an ass or to an ass have you ever had to ask somebody that is completely deplorable something that you need them to do for you think about that maybe it's like some upper management person worth where you work maybe it's the arrogant college professor Maybe it's just like your landlord that you know they're just completely reprehensible, but you're like, the only way for me to move forward is I got to ask this horrible question or this horrible person a question to which I know they will deny me. Have you ever had that situation? Now, this is the whole thing is that if you've had that situation, perhaps the most memorable thing in your brain is when you've had to make an ask of an ass and they're like, sure, no problem. And you're like, what happened? It blows your paradigm up, right? You're like, it's, th- th- that person's evil. How can they do something good for me? It just blows your absolute mind. And this is what Jesus is doing in this story. And yes, it's a little hyperbole, right? He paints a picture of the worst person in society and the best person in society. And the best person somehow, even though they have no power, gets this horrible person to do something good. To grant justice. And this is what Jesus then says about this. 
If you think about that, that, that dynamic, right? The best person who has no power, the worst person who has all the power. If that person, the worst person, is capable of even doing one selfless, just act, how much more then, when you ask God something, is he going to take care of you? God doesn't even fit on that spectrum, right? God is complete holiness. God is all goodness. God is the best of the best. And when you ask God something, there's no framework in which you expect him to respond without it reeking of justice because that's who he is. And this is what Jesus is saying right here, is that even though evil deeds have their moment, moment, holiness will always win. And then our response as the people of God is to trust that he is acting in such a way. Deliberately, we skip the first verse of this because Luke is very deductional within his description of the parable. But what's the point of this little story about the judge and the widow? Is Luke says he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and persist and not give up. Persistence is a American value, right? Like we wear a badge of courage in the places that we have persisted in life and succeeded. Maybe it was something broad, like you had like this career path and you went through school and you went through every single class and you got your work done and you were succeeding. Maybe it was a job ladder, right? Where you started in this lowly position where you're just collecting trash and you've arrived at some point. Or maybe you're on that point. Maybe it was just that you're playing video games and you got past the evil boss on level two. But either way, we love stories of persistence, right? But here's the interesting thing, is that American persistence is not the persistence that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. What he is saying is that don't give up, but always pray. Always pray. Inextricably linked to our persistence is the idea that we should have God intertwined in that. And that is determined by the way in which we pray. So if you are on this trajectory where you want to be successful, you want to succeed and persist, what you need to do even more importantly than this is to continue in prayer. Why prayer? Because what prayer does, and Eric spoke to this this morning, which is great, because when we get spiritual leaders, we're like, well, what does prayer does? And Eric was just completely transparent. He's like, we really don't know what it does. But Jesus did it, and that's something we should do. But more importantly, what prayer does and again, I, I'm a theologian. I have many letters after my name. If you said, hey, hey, Steve, just tell me how prayer works. I, I would just be, I have no idea. I don't get it. But you know what I do get when I pray? When I pray and I utter words to God, what I'm doing is I'm right-sizing the universe. And I recognize that God is the powerful judge who is just and holy. And I am not. So as I pray, I come into a realization of who I am and how I need to act. And friends, that's the power of prayer. And then chasing that up then, if I'm really driven by what God is doing in my life, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit because I know he's going to see it true to the end. The powerless will, be, will receive their justice in God's kingdom. I'm trying to think about, again, how do you illustrate this? And there's lots of pithy stories I could do. But, you know, the one thing is that, like, as the default church historian, because I've been here since day one, you know, 
So we were here. I thought, you know, this is going to be my role in the future. As I'm not like the primary communicator, I get to be the, you know, the older, wiser person, or at least the older person, who, who is able to speak towards where we have come through. And what's interesting is I was just thinking about this. I was just thinking this week about this topic. But for the past couple weeks, I thought about the lowest point in Echo Church. It wasn't a point of injustice, mind you, but it was the lowest point. And it wasn't soon after we started as a church. So we started in October of 2005. And as we came and we met down the street at this old church building, it still exists down here, beautiful place. Uh, Right in January, at the end of January, Kelly went into labor with our daughter, Kaylin. And that was problematic because Kaylin wasn't actually due till April. So she was very early and there was the very realistic chance that we would lose our daughter if she did not, if she couldn't stay in the womb and become strong enough to survive outside of it. So they had her in the hospital at Good Sam on bed rest. And then me, because it was just this trying time, I was spending every night, like the week before, sleeping on this, you know, those awkward hospital chairs. Like for some of you dads there, you're like, oh yeah, I had to do that for two nights. We did it for weeks. It's the flipping worst. And at the same time, we're trying to make sure this church that we had just started still exists, right? So it's a cold, cold January Sunday night. And we're at the hospital. I'm with my wife. And we were meeting on Sunday nights that point. So I leave the hospital to go over and I hadn't done any prep work. We walk into the church building and it's as cold in the whole building as the lobby is when you walk in downstairs. Like the whole building is freezing. The boiler is broke and there's nothing, no heat in the place on one of the coldest January nights. Like you can barely, like it's almost at the point where you can see your breath inside the church building. It was just really bad. But you know what? I'm a solutions-oriented guy. I know we have some small heaters, so we get every heater we can, right? And we plug it in the parlor, and the parlor was the room, and one of the rooms in the back, it was like one of the sizes of those rooms. So small room, I'm like, if we can get some heaters in here for an hour, it'll at least be bearable, right? So sure enough, we're starting to work through that, and about 10 minutes before we're supposed to start our church service, we blow a fuse, And I'm not talking a breaker where I can just go into the closet and flip it on and off. It's like the actual old fuses. And there are none to be found. So this is just a few months into our church's starting. My wife is doing this. And by the way, I actually got sick that week. So I had no idea that I was actually getting sick at the time. We're getting ready to start this church that we're trying to keep going with just a a handful of us. And sure enough, for the first time in, in like weeks, three visitors come up off the street to come visit us. So we're like, hey, welcome to our freezing church. You should come into the parlor and we'll talk. (laughs) So it's just weird, right? Like, if you think about it, some of you have been visiting here. You're like, okay, at least there's pews. There's space. This is good. It's like, hey, we want you to come into this small room. We won't be offering Kool-Aid, but it's okay. Well, there's communion. It's kind of like that. But, um, and sure enough, so it's getting colder by the minute. It was just freezing. And then, you know, so we have a little time of worship, you know, then... I, I start to preach, and then I just say, see people just doing this. And they're, so, you know, I'm just, but I'm, I prepared something. So I'm trying the best to try to say, this is what we can do. And uh, it ends, <laughs> those three people never came back. And I was about done. I was exhausted. I was tired. And you start to say, like, why? Why do we keep going? And I want to use the word persistence about this, but this is where the story gets interesting. So it's just a horrible, horrible night. And my phone rings later that night. It's Aaron, my friend. 
Aaron Burgess helped start this church with me. You're gonna, Aaron's going to be here next week. I hope you guys get... Some of you have never met Aaron. If it wasn't for Aaron, it wouldn't be here. So Aaron, he, you know, he's talking. He's like, hey, Steve. Like, he's he, up, up taken in his voice. You know, and I'm just like, he, he needs to commiserate with me, like, how horrible that was. He's like, Steve, that might have been the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. And he begins to extract different parts of things that I said, just to show, I guess, that he was actually listening and he frames it in such an encouraging way that by the end of our conversation, I actually bought into him. Like, I guess that was pretty good. And every time we had one of those Sundays in the first few years like that, I get a call from Aaron. And we'd be like, Steve, that was, that's, you keep getting better. That was one of the best things you ever said. You said this and that was transformational. In America, it might happen at other places, but I'm only from America. But in a country that values persistence, we like to tell stories that get into that. Like, you know, doing this week, I, I looked at all my good stories. You know, Edison failed like 10,000 times before the light bulb actually worked. You know, Colonel Sanders, if you read his story, it's like the, the guy was in collecting Social Security when he finally got KFC to this point where it was successful. Um, you know, we, we look at stories like, you know, Steve Jobs and Waz, as they start Apple and stuff. It's all these stories about persistence. And we're like, yes, that fires me up. But friends, the inextricable link within the scriptures is this, is that our persistence is directly related to the power of God. We like to focus on persistence, especially of self, because it's romantic, right? Like I pushed through, I made it happen. As much as I could look back 10 plus years ago in that freezing room is like, no, I showed up the next week. There was other people who showed up next week. And there's people like Aaron who called me on those rough Sunday nights. And there's people with my wife who would just keep smiling even though we would just have to work harder and harder to keep things going. There was a lot of you through the years who were just like, no, we're going to keep doing this and this is our community and we're going to fight through this. And that happened because the spirit worked through those people and through you to keep that moving. So as much as we want to romanticize about perseverance and persistence, we realize that it's always connected to what God is doing in a broader level. That's why we have to pray. You know, on a, on a, on a corporate level, like once a month, we're going to do what we did this morning at 1030, show up, we're going to pray before church. You know, it's important. And, and by the way, I, I, it's so important because in that first year, that was basically all we did every week. We would show up to pray, whether there's 12 of us or four of us, we would just show up to pray. And I really believe that where we're at today, that God has blessed us to the point where we're in this place, in this building, in this space, that we're reaching the people that we are, that we've got somebody like David and, and Dylan and Kendra who are like leading us from the staff perspective, all this. I really believe it's just because in those years we kept praying. Because that prayer undergirds our persistence. Because we recognize it's not going to be breakthrough because you're prolific or I'm prolific. It's going to break through because God will see it through. So this is my challenge to you this week. I talked about this on a church level. What does it look like to you at an individual level? Where do you need to persist? What do you need to break through within your life? And if you can visualize that, then how are you going to pray to get this done? Is your prayer centered around your personal success? Or is it just in line with what God is trying to do at a broader level? Jesus elsewhere talked about the end times. uh, Did a lot, like this parable was right about the week before he died. And later in Matthew 24, it's interesting. He's trying to tell uh, his followers about 
what they need to do as their perceived end comes to fruition. And Jesus said this, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, contextually, what he's talking about is Roman occupation coming to end with the fall of Jerusalem. But I think there's some application for you and I here. Do you ever feel like we're living in times where love is growing cold? Do you ever feel like you're in a situation to where you look around you and there are people who are doing everything they can to be completely unjust? And you're wondering where God is. And what God is saying is like, hey, I, I got this. You need to hear this. Listen to this. God is in control. He has this. He's persevering. He's persistent. And we need to respond in kind. Stand firm to the end. And what I love is that as we conclude today, we have a chance to participate in worship where we think about that persistence. And we have a time of communion. If you've been with us before, you know we do this a lot. Every week, matter of fact. It's a tradition that just some of our people have, uh, our churches, and we keep in this. Some of you maybe have a religious background where you only do communion once a year. We do it every week. And it's not because we want it to become commonplace. No, what we want it to become is a time where we, as the people of God, come together and focus on the main thing. So as we pass around the trays, and when you're ready to partake, we're going to invite you to partake, but I want you to think about a few things as we do this. First, I want you to think about where do you need to be persistent in your life? Think about that area. Maybe it's a personal flaw. Maybe it's a specific incident within your life. Where is that persistence needed in your life? Number two, where is God in relation to that? Friends, I'm telling you, if you can't answer number two, then that first one is going to come back to you hollowly. Where does God fit into that? Because he's never given up on you. He persists. Where do you find the Lord within that? And this is the third thing that I think is important as we come to this moment, is that I want you to think about the cross, because that's why we do this. This is why we partake. True? The reason we take this bread and this cup is for thousands of years, it's reminded of us of the cross. It's reminded us of those places where our eternity was changed because of the persistence of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who went to Calvary, who lived and died for you so that your future could be transformed, so your eternity can be transformed. So the answer is, Jesus paid it all, right? So how are you persisting? Take a few moments. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of this persistent widow. Father, we see in this story the truth of the kingdom of God. Is that you are justice and you shall prevail. But God, the one prayer I ask for us is that you might show us those places where we are unjust and we need to become more like you. Help us to weed that selfishness from our life. Because we recognize, God, that 
in your kingdom, you flipped the script and the place that you did that most was through Jesus Christ. God come to earth, living in flesh, giving all on the cross so that our forever could be changed. Father, help us remember, remember now. Change us, O oh Lord. In Christ's name, amen.